know, some people say that the glass is half full. Those optimistic people who always just keep thinking everything somehow is going to be good. Then there's the other people, you know, the pessimists who say, oh, the glass is always half empty. Um, Whether you think the glass is half full or the glass is half empty, I know for a fact that a toddler is going to come by and it's going to knock the glass over and it's going to shatter on the ground and it's going to stain the carpet and it's going to wake up her little brother. That, my friends, is called realism. <laughs> Bad things are going to happen. Who cares what you think about the glass? It's going to get knocked over. In the real world, what we find is that there are problems and problems persist. Accidents keep on occurring. Heartaches happen over and over again. And we think that oftentimes life is going to be smooth sailing, but the facts are that we know, especially if you've lived longer in life, you know that life is not smooth sailing. That's the real world. I think it's important to understand that in this context, in this context of this realism of the fact that sometimes the glass gets spilled and broken and whatever, that we see in this chapter what's going on. And what this chapter, one of the big ideas of it, is that there's nothing that can happen that's going to stop God's purposes. And yet you see in this passage a very real challenge with a shipwreck, with storms, with a northeaster, all these things. It's just in the context of this realism that we understand that nothing can stop God's purposes. And so let us pray. Father, you are the author of these scriptures. And they tell us about your son who has redeemed us and who saves us and applies to us redemption and applies to us the work that you have done. And so, Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would speak, that you would encourage us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the narrative context of Acts 27 is that we see that the key section is Paul's, uh, Paul's speech right in the middle of it, verses 21 through 27. And that's where we're going to focus on it. But before that, before that's happening, we get into this place where it says that Luke noticed that everybody said that all hope of being saved had been lost. What had happened was that several days that they had been beaten down by the storm and everything that all the sailors tried to do did not work. They threw over the cargo, they're throwing over the tackle and the fishing line, they're tying the boat with ropes to make it sturdier so that it wouldn't break. They put down anchors so that it doesn't uh, keep going into the surdus, which is these uh, sandbars in the ocean that would have destroyed the boat. So everything they do is not working. It's not working at all. And the hurricane is relentless, and it's relentless. And after two weeks of being tossed by the storm, they are hopeless. It's kind of like a helpless as a rubber ducky is with a toddler in a bathtub. They can't do anything. They cannot do anything. That's what the point is saying. They're saying they are completely helpless. Many of these sailors 
And these soldiers on here would have been hoping in the Egyptian gods known as Isis and Serapis. Isis and Serapis, they would have hoped, would have intervened and helped them. Isis and Serapis, what's interesting about them, were thought to overrule fate. The idea of fate. Which, as a side note, fate is a pagan idea. It's not, not a Christian idea. And now even the hope of Serapis and Isis, of fate helping them, is completely lost and they are hopeless. And it's right at this moment that Paul stands up and he says some words of encouragement. Read with me Acts 27, verses 21 through 26. He says, at this moment of hopelessness, Paul stood up among them in the boat and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God of whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has also granted you those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. You see, he says, you must stand before Caesar, Paul. And the good thing is that God has granted the life of everybody else with you. And then we see in verses 39 through 44, on the particular part of the shipwreck, it happens. Everybody survives. Even though the soldiers tried to, were going to maybe kill them. And so what we see the point here, one of the overall pictures, is that nothing can stop God's purposes here. Paul says, God says to Paul, you've got to go to Caesar. And it's going to happen. To put it in the positive side, what we're saying is that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. The theological term for what we're talking about, that God's going to do what he's going to do, is called providence. This, this idea of providence is that God is holy, that he is wise, and that he is powerful in managing all of the world and us. He knows what is good. He knows what to do in every situation, which is called wisdom. And he is powerful in bringing it about. That's what we're saying. And yet sometimes we struggle with this idea in life. And this is where the Psalms come and help with our doubts and our struggles so often. Psalm 93, for example, says this. The floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. The waves are getting higher. That's what it's saying. Then the very next verse says, Mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Because he created all of them. He's mighty. God is mightier than the waves. God is mightier than this northeaster, this hurricane that they are in facing in this boat. And then the very next verse after that in the psalm says, God, you're mightier, and so your decrees, your purposes, are very trustworthy. And yet there's a tension here in this passage, is there not? There's an irony here. 
You see, there is no miracle that happens in this passage. There's no actual literal miracle that happens. He's going to go to Rome. But there's no miracle. I mean, it's incredible. One commentator puts it this way. He says, From the moment that they board the doomed ship to the cold, wild morning it broke up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle. No divine power calmed the sea as some years previously Galilee's storms had subsided in recognition of her master's voice. You remember the story of Jesus on Galilee? He says, peace, be still. And what happens? The waters stop. That doesn't happen. No angelic powers conveyed the ship unscathed into port. All the passengers and crews were saved. But it's only after two weeks and more of agonized suffering and a final inglorious hair-raising scramble from the wreck through the surf to the shore. You see, God's purposes are that he would go to that Paul would go to Rome and preach the gospel to Caesar. But he gets shipwrecked in the process of it and faces a tornado or a hurricane. And God doesn't stop it. He doesn't stop the winds and blow Paul right into Rome. It doesn't happen that way. See, just because we don't get a miracle in life sometimes doesn't mean God is not working. Even when there is no smooth sailing, even when that doesn't happen and you don't go and you actually go straight through the storm, God is still working his wise purpose. And here we have to hold this mystery. It's here we have to recognize that sometimes we don't understand God's ways and that his ways are mysterious to us. Again, the Psalms help us with this. Psalm 77 says, When the waters saw you, God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deeps of the ocean, the the dark deeps of the ocean were terrified and trembled. And then a couple stanzas later it says in Psalm 77, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were not understood. We didn't see them. God's way, his path, his footprints, his purposes were through the sea, and yet we can't see it sometimes. We can't see his footprints through the depths of the ocean. The point is that there's a mystery sometimes to why things happen. There was a pastor named Samuel Rutherford. And Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish guy in the 1600s. And he wrote a number of essays and, or letters to different people who were, who were struggling at different times. And he wrote a letter to a guy named Robert Blair who was in a particularly difficult moment in his life um, as a missionary pastor. And Blair lost his wife at the, when she was 27 years old. She, she passed away and they had three children. The same year that this happened, that his wife passed away, uh, he was deposed from ministry. He was taken away from his job because he didn't conform to the church hierarchy enough. Basically, he was a Presbyterian, so he didn't follow the church hierarchy. But he lost his job because of it. And then he later tried to move to New England, and on the ship to New England, there's too much of a storm, so they have to go back. And he stays in England for three years, running around like a fox. Think about that in your life. Can you imagine that kind of a difficulty? The sorrow, the loneliness, the hardship to have your spouse pass away and be left with three small children and be unable to find work. That's hard. 
And yet this is what Rutherford says to this guy. Kind of translate it into more modern English. He basically says, Dude, I understand why you're depressed. It's understandable. And you want to know why God's providence has been like this. But we can't always understand God's goodwill by what happens. And here's what he says, word for word. He says, The Lord sent Paul on many errands for spreading the gospel where he found lions on the way. The Lord sent Paul on many errands for spreading the gospel where he found lions on the way. I mean, think about Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, there were five times that I was beaten uh, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned in the city. Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. Actually, this is about to be his fourth shipwreck. He says, one time I spent a whole day and night adrift at sea. He said, I faced many long journeys. I faced dangers from rivers. I faced dangers from robbers. I faced danger when I was in the city. I faced danger when I'm out in the wilderness. I faced danger when I'm in the sea. More than that, I faced danger from people who claim to be Christians but were not. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. You see, God sent Paul on many errands for spreading his gospel where he met lions in the way, where there were obstacles in the way. And so what I'm saying, and what I think this passage is saying, is that God, you too, God sends you on mission for spreading his gospel where we will find lions or shipwrecks or storms on the way. And yet these lions and these shipwrecks and these storms do not take away from his plan. And what this is meant to do, I think, is to give us endurance. Gives us endurance. Because sometimes I'll take my daughter on a walk to the park and push her in the stroller. And I've told you this before, there are a few wild chihuahuas that live around our neighborhood. (laughs) And honestly, and I'm not kidding you, sometimes these wild chihuahuas come out on the road in front of us when we're trying to walk to the park. And you know, they get these beady eyes that scare you and they growl. They're terrifying little creatures. <laughs> and you know what I start thinking when I find this chihuahua in my path? I start thinking, baby girl, you know what? Maybe that playground isn't that great. <laughs> you, know, you know, if we were really supposed to go to that promised playground land, if it really wanted us to go there, there wouldn't be these chihuahuas trying to stop us. <laughs> You see, when there are obstacles that arise, we consider turning away from what God wants us to do. So if in your work, you know that you're supposed to be ethical, and your boss gets upset for it, or working hard makes your coworkers mad at you, what we want to do is lie low. Or if your family is upset with you for following your convictions of your faith and the Bible. Sometimes we want to stop loving them. Sometimes we even want to despair and give up on our convictions and our faith. But the thing is that God's plans are absolutely sure. And what we do know is that he sends you on mission right into the places where you face storms and lions and chihuahuas and difficulties. This gives us encouragement. 
And I do think that the reality of God's always accomplishing his purposes would make Paul lazy or flossful. The fact that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Would that make Paul lazy? Does that make us lazy? Does that make us slothful? Does that make us passive? Well, I mean, look at Paul here. He doesn't say in the middle of things, you know, Mr. Captain, just let go of the helm and let Jesus do it. He doesn't say, sailors, let go of the ropes. Let go of the mast. God's going to God. God's got you. He doesn't say that. What I find, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this whole passage, it goes into very big detail about how Paul and others are working very hard in this storm. And so what I want us to think about is, is that we are as well supposed to work hard in the storms that we face, even as God is working what his purposes are. And so I want us to think about uh, how Paul worked hard in this storm. And so I've come up with four P's because that's what preachers do. We do four P's or the three R's or whatever. Sometimes we shouldn't do it, but I found four P's of how Paul is working here. So the four P's of Paul's working. First thing that we see Paul doing, one of the ways that he's working is he's working hard in prayer. Now, it's not directly stated, but if you look at verse 424, it says that God has granted you, Paul, all of those who sail with you. God has granted you all those who sail with you. What commentators have noticed is that this word, God has granted you, or God has graciously given you, is that the, is the way of the angel saying, God has answered your prayer request, Paul. And so what it would appear is that while the storm has been raging for weeks, Paul is praying. And it doesn't seem that he's just praying, Lord, save me from this ship, from drowning. Maybe he's praying that too. But he's also praying, Lord, would you please spare the lives of these people that, I'm, that are with me? God has granted you, all those who sail with you. Often are our prayers so focused on ourselves? How often, especially when things get rough, do we just pray, me, me, me? I do. It's easy. But think about this. Paul, he's busy working and he's pleading for these other people on the boat as well. So we see Paul as working hard. He's laboring in prayer for others, even when he knows that things are going to be okay. And even when there's the storm. Second thing, we see Paul, in a way, working hard to provide food. Well, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but in verse 34, look at verse 34. He says to everybody, look, take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head. Notice he says to these, to these sailors, look, you need to eat, because you need strength to do what you're going to have to do. He doesn't say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, whatever, God's going to take care of us, so... He's actually saying, you need food for energy to swim to shore. Because God is going to take care of you. You see it right there in the text. He's saying, eat. Not a hair is going to perish from your head. He's 
trying to get them to eat food. And food is important. Help us do what we got to do. Third, in a way we see here, Paul is working hard to protect the ship and its passengers. So you look at verse 30, and it's an interesting uh, image of what's happening right here. So basically, what the sailors are doing is they say, you know, we're going to go lower the life rafts at the front of the boat, and we're going to go get in them. But we're just doing it to put the anchor down. We're not, we're not trying to escape. We're just going to the front of the boat and getting in the lifeboats to put the anchors down. And apparently nobody else notices that the, the sailors are actually trying to escape and leave everybody else on the boat. But Paul is paying attention, and he sees it. And he says on verse 31, the very next thing, unless these sailors stay on the ship, every one of you is going to die. So do you see how Paul is actively trying to protect everyone, all the while he knows that it is God's plan that everyone would be saved? It's interesting. He's working to protect the ship and its passengers. And the fourth one, Paul's working hard to persuade everybody else on the ship. See, earlier in verse 9 and 10, Paul's weighing in with his knowledge before they get into the storm. And this is where he says, guys, look, let's not be foolish here. The conditions are such that there's going to be a great loss if we continue any further. He's telling them, don't be foolish. Don't do this thing. I've been there before. You know, I've been in three shipwrecks. I know what the circumstances are. And they decide not to listen to him anyways, and they end up in the eye of the hurricane and moving towards the sandbars. But he's working hard. You see in verse 9, he's actually working hard to say, guys, let's not do this. He's trying to persuade them otherwise. And then again in verse 21. Now this is an interesting one about how he's trying to persuade them. He says, Paul, Paul says up, st- stands up to them and tries to encourage them. He's trying to encourage them. But it's funny what he says. He says, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, some people are divided as to what Paul is doing here, but a lot of people will say, look, Paul's just being a smart aleck here. You know, when you're right, and you know that you're right, and then things happen and prove you're right, do we want to say, I told you so? Some commentators are saying, Paul's just going, ha ha, I told you so. Um, but I don't, I don't really think that's what's happening. Others are saying that here, Paul is attempting to demonstrate his trustworthiness. He's saying, like the sailors would say, look, you're not a reliable, you're not a sailor. You don't know anything about this. And Paul is saying, yes, I do. I know what I'm talking about. He's demonstrating in a way his trustworthiness. Now, whether or not that's it worked out, that's what he's trying to do, I think. And look, persuasion, trying to persuade people is, in per, is important. Trying to be persuasive as possible is good. Because think about it. He persuades the men to eat food. He persuades the captain to keep the sailors on board. And I think because he's persuasive, what happens is the captain likes Paul. And because the captain likes Paul and says, Paul, you're a good man, this is the reason that the captain tries to keep the sailors 
from killing all of the slaves, including Paul. See, there's an there's importantness in persuasion as well. But here's what I want you to see the point of all this. Whether it's just he's, he's working hard and praying, he's providing food, whatever, he's protecting people, he's trying to persuade everybody on the boat. The point is that God's plans are going to happen, and yet, like Paul, we have to work very hard in the middle of the storms. Now think about when it comes to prayer in our life. The only way that you're going to keep praying for people when life is hard, and you're going to keep praying for for your own struggles when it just simply seems impossible, when you're struggling with praying for the death of your sin, when you're praying for healing, when you're praying for spiritual life for others, what's going to keep you praying? It's knowing that God can and will accomplish everything He intends to. When we try to talk to people and persuade other people about the gospel of the love of Jesus for them, the only way you're going to keep sharing that gospel with difficult people, with people who are spiritually distant, and do it in a kind and loving way, is knowing that God can and will accomplish everything He intends to do. See, oftentimes, as Reformed Christians, we focus on the sovereignty of God, and we have a big God theology, and the sovereignty of God over all things. Some people hear this kind of talk, and they think, oh, you guys just think that human responsibility is not that important. And it's true that sometimes people within our own tradition have downplayed the importance of our, our responsibility in participating in prayer and in evangelism and everything. But that's unbiblical and a misreading of the Bible. Rather, I think what's going on here, and I think what this, the, the, the sovereignty of God, of Him establishing His kingdom, underscores our responsibility. It enables us to keep going when things are hard and when it properly motivates us in the middle of the storm. Just as it did for Paul here. Paul, you are going to go and share the gospel to Caesar. It motivates us. And the deeper motivation too here is is that we belong to God. We are His. Look in verse 23. He says, look, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship said these things. Half the time that word worship is translated serve. And that's what it is. It's worshiping and serving Him. See, at the end of the day, we work hard and we keep going in what we're supposed to do in the middle of challenges and obstacles because we belong to God. Because we are His. We serve Him and we worship Him. We are not the servants. We are not the slaves of some blind fate. We are not the servants and the slaves of our genetics. We are not the servants of fate. But we belong to God. And everything we do, we do unto Him as worship. And yet, we know, many of us, Know that it's very hard to keep going when we're afraid, when we're anxious, or when we're
were overcome by sadness. Is that not true? It's hard to keep going when inside everything is, is being torn apart. How do you keep going then? See, there's a sense where peace is needed in order to keep working hard in the storm. I know a pastor who is a, he retired and his, one of his daughters passed away from cancer when she was in college. And it was very difficult. He said that it felt like life had stuck his head in a toilet bowl and just kept flushing. It's an interesting image. But see, when life is chaotic and the world is spinning around you, how do you eventually get up and keep going? You know the poster, uh, keep calm and carry on. It's posted on the on the Facebook wall. Lindsay reminded me of the context of it, and it says that the poster, that poster that says keep calm and carry on, and had you know the British crown on top of it, was written was made for government workers during World War II when bomb, bombs were falling. And I think that kind of the idea is keep calm and carry on, just like King George does. hard to do, be told keep calm and carry on. How are you going to do that? You know, there's been uh, now, now, recently, they put a lot of responses to the keep calm and carry on. You know, there's the one that says, I can't keep calm because I'm Irish. <laughs> there's uh, one, if you just type in, I can't keep calm as a response, there's lots of things come up. One of my favorites was, I can't keep calm, I'm a toddler. <laughs> Or for many of you who are in this church, I can't keep calm, I'm a teacher. <laughs> Acts 27, because I can't keep calm because I'm in a shipwreck. Here's, here's the point, the response. We know oftentimes, keep calm and carry on, and then we have a response that says, I can't keep calm because of this. I can't keep calm because it's not in my nature. I'm Irish, it's not part of my nature. I can't keep calm. It's not part of my job description. I can't keep calm. It's not part of my circumstances. It's hard to keep calm and carry on when inside things are going crazy. But what I want to see and what I think is interesting in this passage is notice the calmness and the peace that Paul has in this storm and in this shipwreck. Why do we think that? Why do you think that is? Why would he have this peace and this calmness? I think it comes from because he knows where he's going. Paul knows where he's going. He knows his destination is certain. See, in verse 24, he says, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. I can't help but imagine that if that was you and, and me, to know for certain, like Paul, you're going to go to Caesar, even though you're in the shipwreck. It's going to bring a lot of calmness, is it not? See, Paul had this calmness because he knew where he was going. But I think he had some calmness even before that revelation. The beginning of the storm. There's a calmness that he has. That he knows that he is going to stand before Jesus. I think that's the deeper calmness that he has. He knows where he's going. He says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, that means more labor for me. 
Yet what shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between living and dying. My desire is to depart this life and be with Christ, for that would be so much better for me. Do you see that calmness that he has? Do I want to keep living, which would be good for you guys? Or do I want to go be with Christ, which is much better? Do you have this calmness in your life? Do you have this kind of peace? It only comes from knowing where you're going. And I don't mean knowing you're going to Phoenix or Albuquerque or Dallas. It only comes from knowing that when you die, you will be welcomed in the arms of Jesus. That's where this calmness comes from. John Wesley was a very good man. He and his brother Charles uh, and this guy named George Whitfield in the early 1700s went to Oxford. And they started this club called the Holiness Club. Now, I don't know if, if what you think, but if you were like at UTEP going to a club fair and you have the different clubs and like there's inner varsity over here, there's the Baptist Student Ministry over here, there's the Student Government Association over here, and then you're like, what club are you? We're the Holiness Club. It was kind of intense. And it was intense club that they had. They were very devoted to discipline, very devoted to reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, actually. And they didn't go around and play like everybody else. And this is what Paul says about his time, or not Paul, John Wesley says about his time at the Holiness Club. He said, during that time, in his his letter he wrote, I was very disciplined, but I was unconverted. I was a moralist, and I thought to make God happy by the obedience of my life. So Paul, while he's a good man, he's being in the holiness club, trying to be obedient, he, re- he later recognized that at that moment in life, he was not yet a Christian. And what's interesting is non-Christian John Wesley decides, I'm going to be a missionary pastor. And he decides that he's, gonna, he's called to go to the deep wild west in a place known as Georgia. And he's on his, on his way to Georgia, on the ship. And as they're on the ship, this massive storm comes. And everybody on the ship thinks that their life is lost. They think that everybody's sure that the ship's going to go down and everybody's going to die. And John Wesley, he gets very, very panicked. He gets panicked. Then he notices there's another group over in the corner together. And they're praying. And they're calm. And they're confident. And after the storm ends, he goes up to the leader of that group. And he asked them why they were so calm. And they said, we, were, we are saved in Jesus. And whatever happens to us, we know we're going to be with God in heaven. And it says that he was astounded by their confidence that they had in stark contrast with his fear. After that, the leader of this group comes up to him. And he says to John Wesley, Sir, are you a Christian? John Wesley's response is, "Uh, I believe Christ is the Savior of the world. Kind of dodging it with theological bullet. And the Moravian leader, he responds, he said, Yes, but is he your Savior? And at that moment, John Wesley, 
out of fear and out of shame, he says, well, yeah. But he later wrote, but I was lying because I did not have that confidence. Here's my question for you. Is Jesus your Savior? Or do you try to make God happy by the obedience of your own life? Do you know that Jesus came for weak and weary and scared and anxious sinners just like you? Or do you look to the obedience of your life? Do you look to your attempts at holiness? Do you look at your trying to be a good person, your reading of the Bible, to make God happy with you and embrace you? Because the only thing that your obedience, my obedience will get me is chains that tie us to an anchor and weigh us down and will drop us to the bottom of the sea of our sin and our misery. That's what it gets us. But the good news, do you understand the good news is that Christ came and he took the chains of obedience and he let the anchor of the law bind him and he went straight into the eye of the hurricane of God's justice and his judgment against sin and he went to the bottom of the sea of our sin and was weighed down by it and he died. But by his perfect life... The chains of the law could not overwhelm him. He broke them and he rose again from the dead after three days. And now he is coming to you with authority to break your chains. The chains of your obedience, the chains of your sin. And all there is for you to do is rest. Let him take the chains of your sin. All there is for you to do is to trust him. Is Jesus your savior? And if you're not sure about that question, I would love to pray with you and talk with you. Manuel would love to pray with you and talk with you. Or the elders or any of your friends or family members who know that Jesus is their savior. Because there is a calmness and a peace that comes from knowing that Jesus is going to embrace you. And what's more is not only that, but that when we trust in Christ and when He is ours, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Helper. He gives us the Encourager. The very spiritual presence of Jesus Himself lives within you and walks with you through all the storms of life that we face. So of course we can't keep calm and carry on by our own. It's not part of our nature. But God gives us a new nature in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives you a supernatural ability that you do not have on your own. And He grows the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And He grows peace, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, the giver of Christ's very own peace. You know, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not the peace of the world, which is dependent on circumstances, but my very own unchanging peace. The Holy Spirit gives you that peace, the peace of Jesus himself, and walks with you in the storms. And so the Holy Spirit will keep you calm and carry you on through whatever misery you face in this life. The 
Holy Spirit will keep you calm and carry you on through the sins that you deal with on a daily basis and in your battle with them. And the Holy Spirit will keep you calm and carry you on safely into the arms of Jesus, the throne of God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Be refuge of our souls. When waves of our trouble roll and when we have gloomy doubts that prevail, only your word brings us a sweet relief. You, O Lord, are our only trust. May this be our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.